We're going to look at John the baptizer, although this is a unique story. One of my favorites, by the way, and this is a nod to my friend uh, Pat Hardy, who used to go to this church. You know how Pat liked Irish jokes, remember that? Yeah, everybody knows, okay. Nicodemus, the first Irishman in the Bible, Nick O. (laughs) How he met Nicodemus's need. I'm just trying to get you loosened up here. The people who Jesus met. And uh, today I preach this in honor of my uh, daughter, And son-in-law, who are on a plane going to Abuja, Nigeria today to minister to the people that have been um, terrorized by Boko Haram, feeding these people. Um, and um, I preach this in honor of them because of, the, because of their uh, bravery and their courage. So this is for Maggie and Mohit. This is Matthew 3. Follow carefully along with me as I read, because this is God's word. And I'm going to need some water at some point, if anybody can bring me some water. (laughs) Thank you. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, um, Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Quote, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized, they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but 
After me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then Jesus came from Galilee. He came to, to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. And at that moment, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Hey, thanks be to God. You need to know that I'm a double dipper. I'm not talking about going to Baskin Robbins. I'm talking about how I got baptized. I grew up in the United Methodist Church. And at 12 years old, after going through confirmation, like Mama wanted me to, I was baptized into the Methodist Church. I recited everything I was supposed to say, affirmed everything I was supposed to believe. Wasn't quite sure about everything I was saying. But then the preacher got out his little wand and he sprinkled me. Okay, sprinkled me. A few years later, after I had lived a little bit as a teenager and learned about how much of a wretched booger I was, <laughs> it took the Baptist to explain to me that uh, part of the reason Jesus came was to save this wretch that I had become as a kid, meaning a teenager. No offense, those of you who are teenagers here, but... It became clear to me, not only did I need to have an association with this wonderful community I'd been raised in, but I needed to have, have the intervention of a holy God into my life to save me from myself. It all made sense to me. So in a Baptist sort of way, I walked an aisle, and I yet again affirmed and actually asked Jesus to come to my life and save me from my sins and basically save me from myself. Ever been there? Hope you have. And afterwards, I was dunked by a Baptist minister. I went for full immersion baptism. And actually, I was a big old football player, and this was a little minister, and he had a hard time getting me back up out of the water <laughs> after he, uh, he, he um, baptized me. So I like, the old joke is it's the Dunkin' Donut philosophy of baptism, which is um, some are dipped, others are sprinkled, but all are holy. All right, come on, think about it. I can show you if we have some, you know, afterwards. Not long ago, I went on a vacation to Jordan and Israel with my lovely wife, Sarah, and we got to go see, actually, Maggie and Mahut that I was kind of getting teared up over. They were, prior to going on this new call for two to three years in Abuja, Nigeria, um, they had been in Amman, Jordan, uh, for 
nine months working with the Syrian refugees. And I know some of you were kind of concerned about all that and were praying for that. But anyway, we got to, everything was fine, but uh, we got to go be with them for a full week in Jordan. And then the next week we got to go across the Jordan River into Israel at Easter. So, I mean, it was a, you know, a, a trip of a lifetime. Um, they um, were working with uh, two different mission agencies, basically relief organizations there. But because they had been there for nine months, or at this point, I guess it was seven months, they'd been able to do a lot of reconnaissance. So here are the things we got to see. I'm just going to list them. We got to go to Petra, you know, the big red city, right? Some think that actually that this is an area that the children of Israel mostly hung out in during the 40 years in the wilderness was in that area. At least I just read a book recently about that. But we got to go to Petra. We got to go to Wadi Rum. These, it's kind of their Yosemite or Monument Valley. 3,000-foot-tall sandstone mountains. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, well, that's the setting. That's where they filmed it was Wadi Rum. So we got to go see the, uh, that area. We got to go to Jeresh, this beautiful Roman city ruins. Uh, um, we um, went up to um, many different cities there, but we got to go down to the D- Dead Sea. One of the major things is we got to do is go down to the Jordan River on the Jordan side at this uh, archaeological site called um, Bethany Beyond the Jordan, which I'll talk about in just a minute. But this is where Jesus was supposedly baptized, according to church traditions. We crossed the Jordan. We got to go to Jerusalem and Easter. Uh, While we were in the area, we went to Bethlehem. We got to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, the Wailing Wall, where the Hebrew children are still praying for the Messiah. And then up to the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is. And the Muslims, of course, uh, control that. But that's where the Temple was. That's where it was located. Actually, where the uh, Dome of the Rock is. One of the highlights of our trip, if not the highlight, was we were there on Easter morning. In this cacophony of all sorts of (laughs) human beings. Every imaginable size and color of human being was there to worship Jesus and to celebrate Easter. Marching down the Via Della Rosa, we were at the Garden Tomb for Easter morning service. And uh, we also went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the other area that they think uh, Jesus was crucified and, and buried. But now I can say that I've been to the place where my Savior was born, baptized, buried, and conquered death. He is risen. He is risen indeed. The traditional spot where Jesus was baptized is on the Jordan side. I just told you we went there. The, the east side of the river is known as Bethany beyond the, the Jordan. And if you want to cross-reference this, go to the book of John, first, uh, excuse me, Gospel of John, chapter 1, 19 through 28. This is the location um, that is now the archaeological site that's been um, exposed out of an alluvial mud. Um, it's about 100 yards cur- uh, from the current river. Okay, so in other words, this isn't by the river anymore. It's about 100 yards away. But they've been able to see where the Jordan used to meander, and they have found this unique set of stone steps that go back 1,700 to 1,800 years. And they're pretty sure that this is the spot where John was baptizing all these folks that were having these burdens of sin, and they had to deal with them somehow, and they were coming down to the Jordan River. This is where John was baptizing. According to many scholars, this is the locale that we just read about in Matthew 3. 
This was the place Jesus consecrated himself to God via John's baptism. It was the place where Jesus launched his public ministry of three and a half years. This is the place. It was the starting gate right there on the river. Still can't believe I was there, given everything that was going to unfold from that spot. By the way, this is not a baptism of sin, you know, for the remission of sin. This is a baptism when Jesus came. As he was, it was a baptism of consecration. I'm consecrating myself. I'm getting ready for this great call on my life. That's what it was all about. Jesus started his trek to the cross at Bethany. And John was there to pave the path, to anoint the starting gate for this three-and-a-half-year marathon. John would not be at the finish line, though, on Palm Sunday. The crucifixion, resurrection Sunday, he would not be there. He had his own appointment with sacrifice, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. Now, I realize we primarily talked about Jesus and his baptism at this this point, but what I want you to think about is this unique guy who actually was his cousin, I might add. Jesus' cousin was John the Baptist and his unique call and what he did. And it's his characteristic that I want us to look at today and think about for ourselves. But here's a little background on John. In Luke 1.13... We hear the name John, which his dad, Zacharias, gives him because the angel tells Zacharias to name him John. And, of course, John in Hebrew means Jehovah is gracious or God is gracious, God's gracious gift. I haven't done this recently, but, you know, my first name is John, John Bedford Holmes. And, of course, I try to remind Sarah that I sometimes am her gracious gift. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Okay. Gift of God. He was born to aged parents. These are folks that were well into their 70s and 80s, based on what I can read. Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were of a priestly family, and they had this miraculous baby. Go figure. John. Elizabeth was related to Mary. I think that they were first cousins. And, of course, if you read the Luke account, as Mary is coming with the Lord in her her womb, the, the other baby in Elizabeth's womb, leaps. I'm th- I think he's doing a herky because he knows the Savior is nearby. He's ready to proclaim the gospel even in the womb is what I'm thinking, right? They were both righteous people before the Lord. Um, um, the conception was miraculous. Um, and then in, in uh, Luke chapter 1, we see verse 80, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing to Israel. So this is unique in that he grows up as a little, maybe when he was in his teens, he went off in the desert to become this holy man. Actually, they, they talk about him being a Nazarite in the scriptures. But roughly from his mid to late teens until he's in his 30s, he is on a camping trip in the Judean wilderness. He is out there between God and the ground getting ready for this great call of proclamation that we're going to get, get ready to see here. 
The, the, the desert he was in, and if you've been there, you've seen it, uh, that stretches from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It's about 20 miles down to the Jordan River and Dead Sea. And because of the way the weather patterns work, um, the, the western side of Israel is very lush and green, but it's just like being in Nevada. It's all dry. Everything has been pulled out of the air. They, they call it the rain shadow effect. And when you get to the backside of these mountains as you go down to the Dead Sea, it is like being out in Tonopah. Just making sure you Nevada's, Nevada people are identifying with this. It's that dry and bleak. But this is where John the Baptist gets ready for his ministry. Out at Tonopah. No, no. His dress was reminiscent of all the Old Testament prophets that are talked about. This um, camel hair get up with a leather belt and sandals. Very austere very basic. His dietary fare was that generally consumed by the poorer elements of society. He identified with the poor in that way. But here's the main thing I want to lift up about John in terms of Jesus's opinion. And this is uh, something for us to all ruminate on. In Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says, as the disciples are asking Jesus about who John is, he says this amazing thing. Among them that are born of women, there has not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. Among them that are born of women, there has not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. Why did Jesus hold him in such high esteem? Why? We'll come back to that in a minute. What was John the Baptist's mission? Well, first of all, he was called to be the herald of the king, the prince of peace. He came to pave the way for Jesus. His chore was to prepare a people for the coming Messiah. He was basically Jesus' advance man. Uh, and I, Isaiah and Malachi they talk about this, about he was going to be the preparer of the Jehovah. So he was fulfilling prophecy by what he was doing. The angel Gabriel, when he came to John the Baptist's dad, Zacharias, he said, this person is going to be an instrument of turning many unto the Lord, going before his face, making ready a people prepared for him. It's in Luke chapter 1, 16 through 17. Zechariah himself prophesied that John would be called the prophet of the Most High, who would uh, go before the face of the Lord to make ready his paths. And then even John the Apostle said in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, he came to bear witness of the light. He came to prepare a way for the Lord. So that was his mission. What was his message? Well, it's threefold. First of all, we've already seen it in Matthew 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a message of repentance. Now, most of you should know this, but repentance is very simply this. I'm going this way. I'm stopping it all. And I'm running as fast as I can from that. I'm turning around from all this nonsense and foolishry I've been involved in that I know is wrong. That's what repentance is. And there was a lot of foolishness going on in the kingdom of Israel at that time under Herod, 
There were the Herodians, and then there were the Sadducees, and there were the Pharisees. Pharisees would be kind of the equivalent of the more conservative um, religious people of the day. They were into justice and doing the right thing, and, but uh, they were Pharisees. And, and, and the reason they were so sad is because they were not very fair, you see. They were Pharisees. It's about justice issues. And these were the ones that ultimately would lead to handing Jesus over to the Roman authorities to have him crucified. Now, the Sadducees were another interesting group. They were more of the Greek-oriented Jews in the leadership of the day, and they had a tendency to be more progressive and liberal in their thinking. And one of the major things they didn't believe in is the whole idea of life after death. They didn't believe in the concept of resurrection. And that's one of the reasons they were so sad, you see. Pharisees, Sadducees. You got all that? Okay, all right. It was a mess, okay? It was a time that they needed to repent from all this tomfoolery and hierarchy and bureaucracy that they had gotten themselves in as a Jewish nation. Jesus came partly to call down the Jewish leadership. Not all the Jews by any means, but certainly the Jewish leadership. And remember, he ministered to some of them. Nicodemus, remember the Irishman I talked about earlier? Uh, he came to him at night. He was a Pharisee wanting to figure out what Jesus was preaching. So repentance was greatly needed in this country. Second message that John brought. John chapter 1, 29 through 34. I'm going to read this, okay? So uh, bear with me. But here we go, John chapter 1, 29 through 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, and this is John sitting down by the river and Jesus is walking around ministering to people down in the Jordan Valley. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's there to bear testimony to the sacrificial nature of who Jesus was, was and was going to become. Uh, this is he on, um, on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, and he existed before me. Um, and I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in the water. Okay, this is John talking about why he's doing what he's doing. Okay? And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And he's referring actually what took place in the book of Matthew. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who is baptizing in the Holy Spirit. And I, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He's fulfilling the second part of his mission. This is the incarnate God in the flesh that you're looking at. And he's getting ready to do something way beyond what I've ever thought about doing. He's going to die for your sins and mine. Behold the Lamb of God. That was the second part of his message. And the final one, and don't miss this, he says the axe is at the root. The winnowing fork is in the hands of God. Well, He's basically talking about what's going to happen to Israel over the next 70 years. Okay? He, he's talking about the fact that God is coming in to prune 
and disperse the seed of Israel around the globe. It's um, an amazing story, but if you know anything about what happened after when this was all taking place, which is roughly 30 to 40 A.D., 70 A.D., the Romans came in and basically wiped out the Jewish nation, took it down to the foundations, took the temple and threw it all into the Kidron Valley. It was gone. And that's part of what he's prophesying the judgment on this, this country at that time. So those were his messages. Repent, behold the Lamb of God, the axe is at the root. How much time do I have? Oh, I've got plenty of time. Bruce said so. I hope he's having a good vacation. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. One of the fascinating aspects of the advent of Jesus was the timing of his arrival. From a historical viewpoint, Jesus could not have arrived at a better time to have his claims spread. First, there was John preparing his path. This was an appointment. The herald was there. And the way that things had grown and really festered in the nation of Israel at this point, there was a whole generation that were just dying to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They had had enough of their religious bureaucrats in the holy city. People were desperate to know God. But there were other interesting things from a historical point of view, and bear with me because I'm a history guy, so I've note this. Uh, there were the Roman roads. You go, the Roman roads? The Roman roads. A transportation that laced the ancient Western world together from the English Isles all the way down to Persia, and this sturdy stone highway encircled the entire Mediterranean basin that would eventually serve as the arteries of communication for the disciples to spread the good news about Jesus. Think about that. They already had an interstate highway system in place. Number two, Caesar Augustus, and remember Jesus was born when Caesar Augustus was the uh, Caesar, was a Roman ruler when Jesus was, um, I just said that, born, I'm reading here, sorry. Um, Augustus established what was called the Pax Romana, which in Latin means the Roman peace. Remember those old Roman centurions and all the legions? Well, they also were a top-flight police force. And they created this era of peace for about 300 years um, throughout the Roman world. And so if the disciples, like Paul, let's think about Paul, if he was going to be traveling uh, up to Athens, he had a pretty safe journey because of the security systems in place. Why? Because of the, um, the Roman legions. The Roman peace was a critical part of getting the message out. Um, it provided an unprecedented period of security in which the apostles, like Paul, could freely travel and share their faith in Asia Minor, Greece, Rome, other places. In addition to the security and easy access the Romans provided, the Greeks contributed their language. If you, if you study the New Testament nine times out of ten, you're going to be looking at it in Kona Greek, right? Thanks to Alexander the, the Great, the great conqueror of Greece, Kona Greek was the universal language of the day, kind of like English is in our world. 
As a result, the message about Christ could be understood throughout the vast reach of the Roman Empire in both written and spoken word. Along with John's testimony, it is amazing to consider that via the network of communication, security, the peace that God orchestrated, that within 300 years from this time of baptism, the official religion of the Roman Empire would be Christianity. God took no prisoners when it came to laying down the system to get out the good news. The appointments of God are timed perfectly. There is appointment, there's an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. And at the vortex of all this is John the Baptist. On this stage sets, uh, steps John with his message of repentance. And it's really in three acts, just like a play up here, three acts. Act one, John builds attention. John builds attention. We have a sin problem, people. And a lot of times we don't like talking about this, but we have a sin problem. We need to repent and purify ourselves. Act two, he gathers an audience down by the river. Okay? trying to wash away their sins. Come down, this is a baptism of repentance, showing that you in good faith really want to deal with the sin problem. Come down and be baptized. Now, I'm not saying that it's actually going to all happen, but we need to recognize to the entire public that I am a sinner and I need purification. Help me, God. Right? That's act two. They're all down there baptizing. And, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are all over there taking notes. Right? Act three. John presents the solution. Remember, this is all of the region of the Jordan and Galilee and Palestine. All these people are down there. And they're writing at it in the local newspapers. (laughs) John presents the solution. Christ the Redeemer, the only solution. The only solution. It's like the uh, Speaker of the House when they have a joint session of Congress. The door is open. This guy comes in with his little um, stick. He puts it down. He says, Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. And then the, the President comes in, comes up, gives his message. Well, this is what John was doing. He was the, uh, the keeper of the chamber. He's opening the doors. He's proclaiming that here comes Jesus. And you better listen up. From this stage, Christ launches three-and-a-half-year ministry marching to Calvary to die for your sins and mine. As we conclude here, why was John the greatest according to Jesus? That's my great question. Now, before I give you the answer, mind you that this is a man who is probably a second cousin of Jesus. And he's saying, this is God in the flesh. Okay, this is a relative talking about Jesus. Just like James, the elder, who wrote the book of James, who was Jesus' younger brother, and after living with Jesus, could not conclude anything else but that Jesus was God incarnate on earth. Even his family members said that. Now, I don't know what I'd like, you know, being the younger brother and knowing that my older brother really was God. But... But the testimonies in the New Testament are pretty amazing if you think of it from a legal standpoint. 
There are so many cross evidences here that Jesus was who he claimed to be. But here's John, his cousin, saying, here's the Lamb of God. Why was he great? Well, he had an unwavering dedication to tell the truth about our condition. Our condition. We're sinful people. We need somebody to save us from ourselves. And John was committed to calling that out in people's lives. It cost him his life. He dared to tell the king that he was living in sin. Sexual sin, by the way. And he so outraged the leadership that they took his head off for it. He had an unwavering uh, commitment to truth about our sin condition, even Herod the king's. Sin is our condition. We need a cleansing intervention. What can wash away my sin? As Fanny Crosby wrote years ago, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and our mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is hard to hear, but this is what Paul says our condition is. You know, if you go to the epistle of John, 1 John, it talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Well, that's all indications of what's going on here, folks. And then there's verse 4. It's one of the biggest verses in the Bible. It's the but God verse. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And here's the great Presbyterian verse, by grace you've been saved. It's the unmerited intervention of God in our lives that saves us. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through the faith that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this is Paul's locker room pep talk, folks. And I'm trying to give you the pep talk right now. This is what we're all about. It's the proclamation of the gospel in an unflinching way. We've got to be brave and courageous, people. This message right now is not very popular. But it's still what the gospel is all about. We're made alive in Christ via God's grace to walk doing the good works that God has called us to do. Three applications. 
we must not deviate from proclaiming the gospel in this generation and the next. That's what Zephyr Point is all about, by the way. We were set up to proclaim the gospel. And under this director's leadership, it will never change. You need to know that. Number two, we must not shrink back from confronting unrighteousness, even if we may pay a personal price. John, the Baptist, paid the ultimate price. And number three, we must be brave and courageous. Brave and courageous. For those of you who are cowboy types, John Wayne's famous quote, being scared to death, or excuse me, bravery is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. And there's going to be some need of that. We're going to have to get in the saddle and um, get out there even though we may be scared to death. In summation, John had a bravery we seldom see and an unflinching commitment to proclaim the gospel. This is why Jesus considered him the greatest human being ever born. Amen. And now, I'd like to invite you to... um, Given what we've learned, affirm your faith with the Apostles' Creed. And then we will sing a hymn. Let's say this together as we affirm. I believe in the God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. On it sing, Jesus shall reign.
hear this benediction from the Apostle Paul, also in the book of Ephesians. And uh, this is what I would like to pray for me and for you as well. Verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and that he, he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.